Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And I know we haven't said this in a while, and especially during COVID, where everyone is trying to keep a safe distance. But if there are any questions you have or any comments or concerns, uh, anything that you want to discuss really about Jesus, the church, or what it is that you're going through, uh, anything, please talk to myself or any one of the elders after service is over. Uh, we have Ben in the back. He's an elder, Pastor Dave, and myself uh, who are at this service. But please feel free. Uh, Sundays are a good time to talk um, to us and get to know us better and for us to get to know you better as well. So any questions, comments, concerns, just please come and uh, see us after service is over. At this time, I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 is our passage today. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, as we now come back to our study of this book after our resurrection weekend. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you that we can gather as a church family to worship you. We know that's not true of every church right now during this time, and we thank you that we have that opportunity. We also ask that you would bring us near to you. Uh, we readily confess how much we need you, God. And we ask that you'd open our eyes to see you and our, and our hearts and our minds to know you more. I, I pray that this message would be an accurate and clear uh, and powerful demonstration of your word under the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who may not know you might come to know you. Those who do know you might love you more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After 400 years without a prophet and after uh, four centuries of a silence from God, the angel Gabriel comes to Jerusalem to tell the husband of an elderly godly but barren couple. They couldn't have children on their own. The angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that they would have a son and that they should name him John and that he would be great before the Lord. And as a result of his life, many people would turn to God. That's how the book of Luke opens, with this miraculous conception that in the very place where there had been no life, God would provide life to a husband and wife advanced in years that they together would somehow conceive. This is a miracle. But Luke builds on that in our passage today that as great as an announcement is the birth of John the Baptist, we have within our text the announcement of the greatest birth in history, Jesus the Christ. And it is a miracle like John's conception is a miracle, but this miracle is greater and the person being conceived is greater as well. John the Baptist's own words in Mark 1:7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. We can't compare. You can't even put us in the same sentence. And if you have to, I'm not even at the level of taking off his dirty shoe. Jesus is greater, and Luke is building from one miraculous conception to the greater miraculous conception. And this announcement is given not to a married couple, but to a young woman who has never known a man. And if an elderly, barren woman's body who has a husband, if her body requires a miracle for conception, how much more this woman with no husband and no seed? 
How much more of a miracle would that be? Which is what we're looking at today. What we have in our text is the announcement of the greatest birth in history. We have in our text a declaration of the incarnation, that the Son of God and God himself would be conceived as a human child in the womb of a virgin. This is the announcement of the eternal Son of God, our Savior. And we read in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There is both a greatness and a great humility in this announcement. Notice first the greatness of this child whose name will be Jesus in those last two verses. Son of the Most High, given the throne of David, reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are all titles and phrases of power and majesty and authority. Most High, throne, reign, kingdom, no end, forever. The child to be conceived within Mary is going to be an eternal king. And this king had been predicted and promised centuries prior. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God gives to David a promise there. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God made a promise to David that one of his offspring, a child from his own line, would be this forever king. David wasn't the one. Solomon after him was not the one. David had a long line of children. Some of them were kings. Some of them were pretty good. Others were pretty bad that they had to be chastised. And discipline. David himself had to be chastised and disciplined. But this promise looks beyond just that family of David and the next generations of David's family and into the future. The nation of Israel at the time of Luke's writing, they knew they were waiting for this Messiah. In the first century, they were a conquered people and they held fast to this hope. We are waiting for this promise to come to ultimate fruition. And many Jewish people today who reject Jesus Christ they're still hoping and anticipating the coming of this Davidic king, which will soon will be revealed, to bring a lasting kingdom that will never fail. Rome eventually fell, Babylon before that. Nations rise, nations fall. Kings come and kings go. Thrones are built and thrones are taken down. But God had given his very word in a covenant to David that there is going to be a coming king whose majesty will never cease and his rule will never end, that before this king, every knee shall one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. This king is their hope. And this is their identity as a people, believing and waiting and longing for the fulfillment of this exact promise of this Messiah. And the angel Gabriel is declaring to Mary that the promise given to David centuries ago 
the hope of all of God's people is going to find fulfillment in the son that you will be given. He will be great. The very last chapter of the last book of the entire Bible, this is how the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 says there, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Now listen to how he identifies himself. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the root and the descendant, not just a child of David, but the very root of David. Not only a son coming from David's body, but the very author of that body. And so there's this eternality extending into the future, but there's this eternality extending into the past. Jesus comes from the line of David, according to the promise given to David, and yet he is the very source of David. What is going on here? Humanity and deity, descendant and creator. Now, this is the identity of the son who will be given to Mary, none other than God himself, and yet also a child. This is the incarnation. And so while John the Baptist will be great before the Lord and turn many people back to God, his own life very miraculous, conceived in a barren womb, even he is just a forerunner to this greater one, the eternal king and the hope of God's people, the Messiah, the deliverer, the forever ruler who is to come and has always been, the Lord himself, great. But while Luke wants us to recognize his greatness, he is also very carefully wanting us to recognize his utter humility, that even from his conception, Jesus is very lowly. If the coming birth of John the Baptist was announced to a priest during his once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-career moment where he gets to offer the incense, in the heart of Jerusalem, the main city, with people praying outside, inside the very temple, which represented the very presence of Yahweh. If the announcement of the lesser John the Baptist was given this kind of spectacular setting, shouldn't the greater one be announced in even a greater way? I mean, that would make sense, right? Maybe the announcement should be given in the skies, last for a week, blazing fire by night, pillar of smoke by day, something like that. We've seen that before. And if any woman is going to be selected to get to carry and bear this child, perhaps it should be a young woman found in the most supreme palace, surrounded by attendants, catering to her very whim. But here's a paradox that the greatest birth announcement in history and the most miraculous conception of the most important person ever is given to a young girl named Mary in Podunk, lowly Nazareth in Galilee. You want to know the contemporary opinion of Nazareth? John 1, 46. Nathaniel, hearing that Jesus came from Nazareth, he says in response there, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a reputation of Nazareth. Most booty town in Galilee. To most Jewish people. And Luke, for his Gentile readers, the non-Jewish people, he has to write in verse 26, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The reason why he phrases it that way is because his Gentile readers, his non-Jewish readers, they don't even know what Nazareth is. Oh, it's a city in Galilee. That's ah, not even Judea, where the real people are. This is a lowly beginning. And the young woman, Mary, is in a very humble position in life. She's afraid that an angel would ever even appear to her 
that when Gabriel says, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you, in verse 28, she's troubled by the greeting. She can't quite figure it out. You know, there are some people who just assume God's presence and influence in their life. They just presume that they should be leaders, that they should be significant, that they should be somebody. And when someone tells them, God has an extra special plan for you, distinct from other people, they kind of nod their head in agreement. Yeah, that sounds about right. Kind of puff their chest out a bit. You know what? That makes sense. I am that person. This young woman who is going to carry the son of the most high, the forever king, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, this isn't her attitude at all. It's the exact opposite. And she's from a small town that no Gentile had ever even heard of. And those who had heard of her town, nothing good could ever come out of there. Mary is poor and she is humble. And yet the angel is clear. She is favored. And I think there's an implicit exhortation here, even in this birth announcement, that we shouldn't over-glorify things like wealth, brothers and sisters, or fashion an idol for ourselves out of power or prestige or position or popularity. But here it is that while Luke does want us to recognize Jesus' greatness, he is also very carefully wanting us to recognize his utter humility. And I've been saying this passage all week, and then I get home and look at my kids in Hawaii Kai, and realize every single one of them had it better than Jesus ever had it. Better clothes, better toys, better vehicles, better sports, better house, better food. Jesus' beginnings are less than all the little children here. He began in a very lowly place. And this is the paradox, again, that doesn't seem to line up. How someone so glorious could enter into earth so despised, poor, and seemingly unimportant. And yet it is that the God of heaven and earth would somehow choose to exalt the lowly and lift up the humble. Look, if Mary hadn't been chosen by God for this very purpose, we would have never, ever heard of Mary. She's just a humble person engaged to a normal and humble man. And yet this is actually the pattern of scripture. I mean, wasn't it David himself as a forgotten brothers in the field? Samuel comes looking to anoint a king, goes to David's oldest brother. Is it him? No. Is it him? No. Is it him? No. Is it him? No. Is it him? Do you have any more sons? No. Oh, yeah. We have another son. He's out washing the dirty sheep because none of his brothers wanted that job. Do you want me to go and get him? And wasn't it that young boy who had been given the most spectacular promise as well that the Messiah would come from his own line, not his brother's lines? Who's the favorite one in our text? And who is it that Gabriel says the Lord is with? And brothers and sisters, God loves to exalt the humble. We must never forget that. For we are taught the exact opposite lesson by the world. So we got to ask ourselves constantly, what kind of people do we really want to become? For those of us who are older, what, what kind of people do we want to be as we enter into our last set of years? How do we want to be remembered? What kind of people do we want our children to turn out being? The go-getters, the confident ones, the ones who get served rather than serve? What direction are we nudging them in? Let God do the exalting church family and not ourselves. For many who are last shall be first. 
and many who are first shall be last. And so here it is. This child will be absolutely great, and yet he is utterly humble. We have the Son of God, God himself, the root of David, and yet the descendant of David, the eternal king, and yet born to a poor woman in Nazareth. We continue in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. How can it be that the Lord will become a baby? How is it that a woman who has never known a man, a woman whose egg has no seed, this is basic human biology, how is it that she could conceive another life within her? Now, Mary's not asking this question like Zechariah asked a question and doubted in the verses right before our text. Mary, she's not filled with doubt. She just wants to understand. And oftentimes, we do want to understand more than is explained. I mean, if there's no seed, if there's no dad physically involved, what happens if Jesus takes an Ancestry.com DNA test? Is it going to be all Mary? Any link to anyone else? What about what Jesus physically looks like? Are there going to be any hints of Joseph at all? I mean, just for the cover. Is Jesus going to be 100% mom? Or maybe his face might have hints of Adam, maybe. I mean, Adam didn't have human parents either. Or what race is Jesus going to be in our race-obsessed world? Well, Jesus, we know, is half Israel. Is he half something else? Is he even half-ass? And we can speculate all day long, but that's not the point of Gabriel's explanation here. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's nothing sexual about this sentence, like in paganism, where deities get intimate with humanity in a physical way to produce these hybrid children. The language here, overshadow, it carries a sense of this holy and powerful presence of God. Just like in the Old Testament, this cloud would hang out over the tabernacle every time the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God. Or in the opening chapter of Genesis, where the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters right before creation, and then creation occurs. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's it. That's all we're given that the Holy Spirit, God himself, will overshadow Mary like the cloud, that the glory of God will be upon her, and therefore, as a result, life could be produced within her. God is bypassing the normal process of reproduction to create this new life. But this kind of conception, it really has been predicted ever since the first sin of humanity and ever since the fall of humankind. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God tells a serpent, this is after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, after the, after the snake tricked them. God tells the serpent, he tells the devil there, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Her seed. Women don't have seed. Men have seed. But that's not pointing to a regular birth now, is it? And it already is, right after sin had entered into the world, that God is unveiling his plan to rescue us from sin. 
that every single child of Adam, because of his sin and us with him, we've been tainted with sin. The entire human race is marred. We're a broken people. We're sinful. We're a ruined humanity. I mean, we just have to watch the news for five minutes to know that even our highest leaders and the authorities of the most powerful nations across the world, they are not only people, and neither are we. But this eternal king, he must be holy. And therefore, the eternal king must not be a son of Adam, for otherwise he would be tainted with sin just like the rest of us. And yet God so decreed it that the eternal king would be like Adam, truly human, and yet unlike Adam, truly godly. God must become flesh. He has to enter into our existence. The man Jesus, the incarnation, is really this astonishing act of God's self-giving love on his part, that humanity and deity might be joined together in the person of Jesus, and this must be, and we're getting ahead of our passage now, but it must be this way. For Jesus Christ has to be sinless and righteous in a way that no human being has ever been. Our sinful nature inherited from Adam makes it impossible that any of us could be worthy. And yet Jesus Christ, to save humanity, must be humanity. Hebrews chapter 10. The Savior must be divinely holy and yet utterly human. And this is what makes this incarnation so important because it's what qualifies Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He has to be infinite in one sense. He has to be human in another. He has to be just like us. He has to be completely unlike us. And Jesus Christ is conceived in this miraculous fashion to be born, to live the life that none of us have ever lived sinlessly, and to die the death he didn't deserve as a substitute for sinners who do deserve death and death eternal. That the creator of all things will be hung upon the cross for the creature the Son of God, our sinless mediator. This incarnation is crucial for salvation. This is the greater miracle and the greatest birth announcement in all of history. And so this Messiah, this forever king, this eternal ruler, God himself, he first comes to be born of a poor woman from Nazareth to live righteously so that he might die for the unrighteous. And the smaller miracle of John's conception is a sign to Mary, a proof to her of Jesus' greater conception. The incarnation preaches that salvation is all of God, all of it. We can't make it an incarnation. We contribute nothing to salvation. It's impossible for me, it's impossible for you to be saved on our own, just as it is impossible for a barren womb to bring forth life and impossible for a virgin to be with child and impossible for sinful humanity to be united to holy deity. It's impossible. God has to do it, and he does do it. And the conclusion of the matter is such that the statement is true, for nothing will be impossible with God. And while we know that the incarnation is true, it remains another mystery as to how it happens. But it is altogether a different kind of, mis diff different kind of mystery that it even does happen that the creator in his amazing grace becomes a creature for the creature's sake. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We see in this last verse of our passage a beautiful 
and godly submission to the will of the Lord. If Zechariah, the priest within the temple, had been filled with doubt, Mary, the poor girl from Nazareth, is, is filled with this marvelous faith. Now, we can read and skim a text like this because we already know the gospel. We already know what's going to happen. We already know that Jesus is going to go to the cross. We know that that's going to Mary has no idea what's going to happen. She doesn't know the cross is coming. She doesn't know that Joseph is going to actually stay with her. She doesn't know that this is God's plan, that the eternal king, the son of David, is going to die first before he reigns. She doesn't know anything. Mary is betrothed to Joseph, pledged to be his wife, daydreaming about their future together. And this man is about to get the shock of his life, that the young woman he's engaged to, who's saving herself for him, is going to start showing a baby bump when she's supposed to be a virgin. And now what are her parents going to think? And she's from a very small town. What are they going to think? You think she could shake that rep? You can't hide it. And Mary is likely only in her late teens, maybe. And we don't have any hint of an objection at all. There's not a request for more answers on how everything's going to be played out. Uh, Gabriel, this is a lot you're asking me. I deserve to have a few of these questions answered. The least you could do, since I'm doing this, is to give me some more details. But we have here a different kind of response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a portrait of godly faith, brothers and sisters. And she can trust him even when she can't see where God is leading her, even when she can't put all the details together. This is genuine, willing belief that we trust in God more than we trust in a roadmap, that we can believe in the plan of God even when we don't understand the plan of God. Mary's an example of what it means to receive the word and to do his will. She personifies Christian character, and she's young. There's young people here and young people right in front of me. Mary's faith is not her mom and dad's faith. It's her own. She's not coming to church because mom and dad are dragging her to church. This is her own belief. This is her own trust in God. And she's able to accept a very high calling of God very early in her life. Your faith is not for later or for when you get older. Your faith is for now. And God has done amazing things through young people who walk hand in hand with their Lord. So cultivate your relationship with him early and do it often. Just start small. Just do it every day. And Mary's acceptance of God's will for her life, again, is nothing short of beautiful, even when it means that his will for her life seems like it's going to cost her greatly personally in her relationship with Joseph, in her relationship with her parents, her community, this is a sacrifice of her reputation. This is ongoing shame for her life in this religious environment. In this day and age, she was not going to get a career. This is potential future poverty. And yet, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, which means I trust that his plans are higher than my plans for my life. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not just for Mary. This is a call for all of those who follow Jesus Christ, that we can trust him 
even when we can't see how it's going to work out. That we can put our trust in him even when it might cost us greatly personally. That we can believe that his plans are better than our plans instead of Saul, that I'm not getting my way. Trust in God, faith in God, belief in God centers our lives around God. And his glory means everything to us. And we, when we can live like this, rather than live for ourselves, we are actually very, very free. And so pray to the Lord and ask him that he would give to us this kind of humble submission that is displayed in Mary. Now, as we come to the Lord's table on the second weekend of the month, and, and the body and the blood of Jesus Christ are set before us, even when we hear the name Jesus, Matthew 1.21 tells us, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this past year, there's been several pregnant ladies walking around church. Maybe that's related to COVID, I don't know. Question comes up, what are you going to name the baby? Maybe after grandma, maybe after grandpa, maybe a middle name, maybe a nice athlete's name, as if the name has to do with how the kid's going to turn out. From Jesus' very conception, there is but one goal for his birth, life, death, and resurrection, that he might save his people from their sins, that when Jesus offers his body and his blood for you to eat and to drink, be reminded of this very incarnation, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. When we come to the very body and blood, we're confessing that poverty of his was to make us rich. That's why we eat it. You know, when Jesus was growing up, they used to taunt him. They knew, a lot of people knew, Mary got pregnant before she got married. In John 8, 41, his opponents, they said, we were not born of sexual immorality, Jesus. What's the innuendo there? You were. No one knows who your daddy is, Jesus. His whole life he endured that in addition to a cross. And that's not for us to feel guilty about that or to make us feel bad. It's to fuel our worship. It's to understand how much it is that he loves us. If you could measure how much he suffered, even more than that is how much he loves you. He endured all of this for you, church. He endured all of this, and he calls us his bride, that we might eat and drink of him and commune with the one who gave all of himself for us. And let that body and blood of Christ redefine in our own minds what true greatness is in this passing world. John the Baptist, great before the eyes of the Lord. Jesus Christ, he will be great. And the sum of both of their lives, self-giving, self-sacrifice, humiliation, so that people might come to know God. The body and blood given and shed for us remind us what true greatness is in this quickly passing life, and that a day is coming soon when the Lord himself will exalt those who have humbled themselves. He is going to come to reign eternally. The time is not yet, but the time will be one day soon, and he will lift up those who live there all for him. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for Jesus, and even as we think upon the incarnation, we realize how difficult it was for you to save us, and yet you did the impossible. Your love is beyond the impossible. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Jesus' ascension. We look longingly for his return for us. And we pray, God, that you will make us humble, that you would make us great, even if it means we're last for right now. Help us to live our alls for you and feel the freedom of what it means to lose our lives so that we might gain it. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.